back in my football playing days, we would, each game week, the coaches would throw in what they called a wrinkle. They would put in a trick play or two that perhaps they thought might fool the opposing team for that Saturday. So for example, if we thought that we could fool Auburn with a double reverse pass, well, on Sunday, we would install that play into the playbook and practice it throughout the week. Um, but if by about Thursday, we had not mastered that trick play, if it wasn't crisp, then we'd hear Sparky Woods, our offensive coordinator, he'd yell out from across the practice field, scrap it, scrap it. He'd even make us tear the play out of the playbook, crinkle it up, and throw it into the trash. Symbolic here. Because listen, if it didn't work, in practice, it for sure wasn't going to work in the game against real competition. This happened a lot when I was at Mississippi State, by the way, in case you're wondering. We scrapped a lot of things. Probably should have scrapped even more. Um, now, I know you shouldn't stay, say stuff like this in church, but there are some parts of the Bible that some of us maybe wish we could scrap. There are parts of the Bible that, if we're honest, they're very difficult to understand some things are very difficult for us to accept, and it may be our preference just to ignore those things altogether or just shrug our shoulders and keep on going. Uh, one of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, was convinced that miracles were not possible. Miracles couldn't possibly exist, and so he created his own gospel, his own Bible, where he cut out all the miraculous things that Jesus did and only kept in his teachings. He made his own Bible and scrapped the parts he didn't like. Okay? Um, now, I knew when we were walking through 1 Peter that eventually we'd get to this text at the end of chapter 3. I knew that. One of the most confusing scriptures in the entire Bible, honestly. But we're not going to scrap it. Okay? That's not something we do here. We're not going to just shrug our shoulders and pass over it in favor of something that's easier for us to understand. Um, there are some areas I'm going to just have to plead ignorance on today. Okay? I don't fully get all of this. I, I want you to know that. But we're not going to scrap it. We at Harvest Church, we believe that all Scripture is God-ordained and God-inspired and is profitable for us, even the parts that maybe confound us. Okay? And so let me just say that in, in a Scripture like this, the details are difficult, but the overall message is, to me, pretty clear. Okay? And that is that the death and resurrection of Jesus have firmly established for you, for me, a living hope that cannot be measured and cannot be lost. That's the big picture here, okay? And we see that beginning in verse 18, this precious verse, uh, not as confusing here yet, verse 18 by itself. See what Peter says to us. He says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Can I ask y'all for a personal favor? Will you memorize that verse right there for me? No, do it for you, okay? This is a verse that would bless you for the rest of your life if you committed it to your mind and your heart. Verse 18, because right here, Peter it gives us at least four decisive truths in this one verse that we just can't live without. At least four things he tells us that for us, we have to build our lives on if we're going to be Christians right here. Peter says first that Jesus died for sins. Now listen, Jesus, when he came to the earth, he did not come merely to teach us things. He didn't come simply to show us how to be better people or how to be less sinful people. 
Jesus came to give his life for our sins. Jesus said, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. His death is the gracious sacrifice that our sins require. And that's why Peter says he died for sins once for all. You notice that? I love how he adds that in, once for all, that this was not a sacrifice Jesus gave us simply to give you a fresh start. That's a popular way of thinking that because Jesus loved me and died for me, I get a do-over. I get a second chance at life that I can, I can have my, my, uh, my past cleaned up and my future now has great potential because I've been given this second chance. But y'all, that's not the message of the gospel. That when, when Peter says that Jesus died once for all, that this is a death that has accomplished your forgiveness from top to bottom forever. It's not just a fresh start so that you can try to do better next time. Frankly, that wouldn't do us any good because we're sinners. I'll mess it up all over again before the day's over. I'll mess it up again. And so Jesus died once for all. See, God can never do more or better for you than he's already done in the person of Jesus Christ. He's not holding out on us for something more down the line that we're going to need in addition to what he's already given us. Jesus died once and for all. The cross was a one-time event that has everlasting consequences. It never fades. It never dries up. His love will never run out because the cross is the assurance of that. And Peter tells us thirdly that Jesus died the just for the unjust. In Romans 5, there, it says that we are ungodly, unworthy enemies of God. That's what the Apostle Paul says about our sin. It's not a pretty picture. It's not how I like to think of myself or what I like to see when I look in the mirror. But the truth is, apart from Jesus, ungodly, unworthy, even enemies of God. And yet, Paul says, though, that God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, while we were in that hopeless and helpless state, Jesus died for us. He's the just dying for the unjust, the perfectly righteous son, the, the only person who's ever lived who had no sin in his account. He died for people who were, like me, sinners. He's our perfect substitute, the just for the unjust. And then fourthly, Peter says, so that he might bring us to God so that he might bring us to God. And sometimes I'll take that fourth little phrase for granted. When I think of coming to Jesus, what Jesus will do for me, you know, I'm thinking, okay, Jesus hopefully will give me peace and joy and purpose and meaning and comfort and all of those nice things. And he, he can and he does. Uh, oh, but, but none of those things are even possible unless he has brought me to God. The one thing you cannot do for yourself you can potentially go seek in the world peace, joy, comfort. You're probably not going to find much out there, but you could do that, or at least try. The one thing you can't do, you cannot come to God on the basis of your own righteousness. That's something that has to be done for us. And so the, in theory now, even if your entire life around you falls apart, this one thing has been accomplished for you. Jesus Christ has introduced you into the family of God. No longer an enemy, but now a child of your heavenly Father because Jesus has brought you in. Something you could not do, he's done it for you. Okay? And he did it, Peter says, verse 18 at the end, he did it by being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. All of those things that we just read are possible, and not just possible, but they are assured to us, because Jesus himself died 
and has been raised to new life. He's been resurrected. Okay. Um, I'm tempted to just close in prayer right now, okay? Because here's where things get strange, all right? Verse 18 is our anchor verse. I want you to hold on to verse 18. Here's where things get a little strange. Verse 19, in which uh, Jesus, remember, he's died in the flesh. He's been made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. <clears throat> Peter's making a reference right here to Genesis chapter 6. You don't need to turn there. But it's a very famous story. It's the story of the flood. That, uh, that Peter's going to invoke that story here from Genesis 6, but he's going to kind of throw us a curveball. He's not going to tell us the story in a straightforward manner. Now, if you remember, the great flood, it, that, the flood came because God was so grieved and angered over the incessant sin of humanity. Sin had totally boiled over. It had gotten beyond control, and so God decreed judgment over the world. But he esteemed a man named Noah, that Noah was righteous. Noah was faithful in the midst of a very crooked and perverse generation, and so he called on Noah to build a giant boat called an ark. And all throughout the building of the ark, which took years and years, Noah was preaching to the culture, to his people. He was preaching a message of righteousness and repentance. Turn from your sin, turn to God, but the people refused. They continued in their wickedness until eventually they were uh, uh, covered up by the floodwaters. The flood came, and only, the, only, the, the only people who survived were Noah and seven of his family members who took shelter within the ark. Okay? Um, but what Peter tells us here is that Jesus went and heralded a message to the spirits now in prison who proved to be disobedient to God during the construction of that ark, and then they were wiped away by the flood. Now, what in the world is Peter talking about here? There are two dominant views, theories, on what Peter means here. Okay, I'm going to give them both of you real quick. One is that the Spirit of Christ... In, not in a tangible way, but the Spirit of Christ, in, back in Noah's day, that the Spirit of Christ went to Noah and essentially spoke through Noah to the people of Noah's time and preached through Noah, speaking through him, as it were. Jesus preached to them a message of righteousness and repentance. Um, those people, of course, did not listen, and now their spirits are forever imprisoned under judgment in hell because of their rebellion, because of their refusal to listen to the Spirit of Christ through his servant, okay? Uh, many pastors and scholars that I deeply respect hold to that view, and I like that view, frankly, because it's a little easier. It's a little easier to explain and to understand, okay? The second view is actually the majority view, which says that the spirits now in prison are not people, but they are fallen angels uh, who had rebelled against God, there's another confusing scripture at the beginning of Genesis 6, right before the flood account. It explains what precipitated that flood, what led up to it. And it tells us that, that the sons of God took the daughters of men and married them and had relations with them. And uh, it's believed that the sons of God are called that in Genesis 6 because uh, they are angelic. 
They are the fallen angels who uh, descended from heaven with Satan when he rebelled against God. And now, in some tangible fashion, they have taken on human form and they are procreating. Okay? They are uh, flooding now, in a sense, this, this, the, the world with their sin. And God, in response to it, brings the flood of water. Okay? Um, and so they were perverting the earth with their sin and God put an end to it, basically. Now... Jesus, having died on the cross and having been raised again from the dead, being raised in victory, he goes to these spirits who are eternally bound in prison. They are under God's judgment as we speak, and he makes proclamation to them. He goes and tells them that he has claimed the victory over sin and death and evil once and for all, and the the world that they were trying to corrupt, Jesus has now become the Savior of the world. And he goes and triumphs over these, these spirits, and he goes and tells them so. Okay? Now, I wouldn't bet $10 on this, okay? But I, if you had to twist my arm, where do you fall on those two views? I tend to lean to the second view. And honestly, I went back and forth even this week as to how I feel about it. But I, I lean toward the second option that says these spirits in prison are fallen angels. Uh, part of the reason I, I lean to that view is what Peter says in verse 22, the last verse of chapter 3 here. He says, Jesus is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven. This is post-resurrection. Having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. That is both good and bad. Jesus is above all things, the created realm, all the angels, both the good and the bad. Jesus now, ha- they, they are like his footstool. He rules and reigns over everything. And so my sense is that that's what, in part, what Peter means is that Jesus has subjected these powers to himself. He has claimed victory over them. He even went and made proclamation to tell them so. That their intended evil did not fulfill its intended result, but that he has become the Savior for sinners. And in the context of 1 Peter, if we remember what 1 Peter's all about, he's writing to people in the early church who were being persecuted for their faith, their suffering for their faith, which is in itself a demonic reality. This persecution, Satan is driving this, that they're experiencing, and Peter is comforting them to say, listen, not only has Jesus forgiven your sins and brought you to God, but Jesus has been victorious over all manner of evil, over all sin and all death. Uh, these, These forces cannot defeat you because they couldn't defeat your Savior. And therefore, you can have comfort and encouragement even in the midst of your own trials. I think that's what Peter's getting at by pointing us to that story here. Now, are we all clear on this? <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, this scripture, I just say it, it continues to confound me. It always has. I read it for the first time in college. I put a big question mark in my Bible in pencil, thinking at some point I'm going to erase that question mark. I'm going to have this thing figured out. And it's still there. It's still there. Okay. Uh, even the great Martin Luther said, this is a wonderful scripture, but I cannot say for certainty just what Peter means. All right, if Martin Luther didn't know, then I'm not going to get all cocky up here and pretend like I know, okay? Um, but the, regardless, and regardless of the details, I think the big picture is clear, and it's obvious that Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, is now forever victorious over evil. And even in God's judgment of evil, like in the flood, he graciously preserves those who walk by faith in him. Peter wants his readers to know, listen, you're being persecuted now. Let God judge your persecutors. He'll take care of things. Don't worry. 
You be faithful, and God will raise you up in the proper time, just like he did with Noah. And so when, when, G, when, when, when Peter brings Noah and the ark to bear in this scripture, he's trying to encourage his readers who are facing persecution in, in any trial that we face, especially when we're done wrong, we ought, to, we ought to take comfort in this too. See, Noah and his family lived in a sinful, antagonistic culture, just like the early church did that Peter's writing into, just like perhaps at times even we can feel, although not to the same degree here. And Noah was regarded as faithful, as righteous in the midst of that perverse and evil generation. And Peter is assuring the Christians of his day that they receive the same blessing. God will see you through this. God will see you through this. He has not forsaken you. Um, But notice the picture that that Peter uses to make this point. He's going to give us a second confusing verse here. Okay, Not quite as as confusing as the first. At least he lumped them all together for our benefit, I guess. But you see at the end of verse 20, he's talking about the ark. and And still, even though I've tried to explain it, why is he talking about Noah and the ark? Of all the Old Testament stories he could have chosen, of all the things he could have said, he says of the ark that, that only a few persons, eight in particular, were brought safely through the water. Now look at verse 21. He says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, there are Christian churches and denominations that take that verse I just read absolutely literally. It's called baptismal regeneration. That's the fancy term. It basically means that baptism saves you. That faith in Jesus all by itself is not enough to get you to heaven. You have to be baptized. You have to be either uh, immersed in water in baptism or sprinkled, but it's got to happen. And and see here, Peter says it, right? Um, Now, we're not one of those churches, and I'll explain why. In the story of Noah, think, okay, now why does Peter give us this story? What, what, what's, what point is he trying to make? In the story of Noah, the water, the flood water, was the instrument of God's judgment, right? The flood water is what wiped out the sinners who had uh, rejected and rebelled against God. In Noah's case, Noah and his family, the ark was the instrument of their salvation, of their rescue, Had they not had the ark, they would have drowned in the water just like everybody else. It would have consumed them too. And so God brought them safely through the waters of judgment through a saving vessel, right? They were in the ark. Now, corresponding to that, Peter says, baptism saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. And Peter's point here is that the water itself, the water of baptism is symbolic, it doesn't actually cleanse you. The water doesn't actually purify you. All it can do at best in, in, in its tangible form is remove dirt from your flesh. He says, but that's not what baptism is. Jesus is the one who purifies. Jesus is the one who cleanses, and he does it by faith, by faith. Uh, I'm going to put this on the screen from Romans chapter 6. When the Apostle Paul speaks of baptism, he does not speak of ritual only, but he gives us the meaning behind the ritual. He says there's a reality that we've been united with Jesus. Romans 6, let me read this for you. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Christ in the likeness of his death, 
certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. What's the point of that image there? When we are baptized, when we are immersed into the water, under the water, there's an image that we're communicating there. It's the image of death and burial. That the old person, the, 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 the old man, Paul calls it, has died and is being buried. And when we emerge from the water, that now represents resurrection. That's why Paul says we've been raised now to walk in newness of life. It's not talking about our future resurrection one day. It's talking about present tense. We've been raised in newness. And so uh, we, like Noah, are brought through the water, as it were, by God's grace. The water is not our salvation. In Noah's day, the water was judgment. It was the ark that was their salvation. And in that sense, we pass through the waters, we're dead and buried symbolically, and we're raised in Christ. He's the one that now unites himself to us and brings us into new life. That's what baptism is meant to represent. And that's exactly, I believe, that's what Peter's point is here. That in our uniting with Jesus by faith, that's what saves us. Baptism is the response, is the reflection of that reality, not the washing off of the body with water, Peter says, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now let me ask you this. Do you have a good conscience? Do you have a clean, a a clear conscience? That you can look back over your life, or you know what, even just over the last week, let's just take the last week, that you can look back at both your public life and your private life, and you would be able to confidently take the content of your week and set it before God and say, I'm pure. Do you have that kind of conscience? Maybe you're more like me. I wouldn't put the best 15 minutes of my whole life in front of God with any confidence that what he would find would be absolutely pure and worthy Uh, and suitable for his righteousness, okay? And that's why when Peter says that in baptism we appeal to God for a good conscience, it's something that God alone can give to us. You can't produce a good conscience. You know better. I know better. We're sinners. That's the whole point. We can't look back even over one day and say that's suitable for God's righteousness. That's perfect and pure. I'm I'm comfortable with, with handing this over to God and he'll accept it fully. No, we appeal to him for something that only he can do, and that is the firm and absolute forgiveness of our sins, complete forgiveness over all our sins in the past, and because it's a once-for-all sacrifice, verse 18, even those sins that we have yet to commit are covered under the gracious love of Jesus Christ through the resurrection victory of Jesus over your sin. He sealed that potential for us to have a good conscience by rising from the grave and showing forth that he is victorious over anything that we do. God now forgives. God now cleanses. And see, that's what baptism is. That's what it represents. It's complete forgiveness. It's complete purity in God's eyes forever because Jesus has brought us safely through the waters of judgment by giving his own life for us. We are now in Christ who died, who was buried, and who has been raised from the dead. And so now we have life in ourselves. And because we are in Christ, we don't receive judgment as our conscience would condemn us. We receive life. We receive grace because of what he's done for us. Okay? Now, this, is, this maybe sounds like a rabbit trail. It's not, okay? But th- there are many churches, many denominations, many pastors who baptize infants 
I have tremendous respect for these people and these church traditions. But again, that's not something that we do here. Okay? And part of the reason is that our conviction of baptism is that baptism is meant to be a conscious act of a person who has trusted Jesus for their salvation. A person who has, who has experienced repentance for their sin and grace to save them, and they have appealed to God personally. They have asked God, begged God for the good, clean conscience that only God can give them through the forgiveness of their sins. That's, that's not, in my belief, that's not something an infant can do, and therefore we don't baptize them until they're able to communicate that and receive it personally. And so I just, I want to ask you on this. Uh, have you been baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ? Um, perhaps you never have been. Possibly you were as an infant or at a very young age, and you have since become a believer in Jesus. And I just, if that's the case for you, can I just invite you into a conversation about that? Um, it's, it's not for us a matter of judgment it's a, or a matter of pure right and wrong that we should, if, if, if we've gotten things out of order somehow, that we should feel ashamed of ourselves. No. But we do communicate this, that on one hand, baptism is not necessary for salvation. We don't believe that. But it is absolutely significant. It's important to God. God uh, speaks of it through his word all the time. The Bible is very clear that this was the pattern, that those who were saved throughout the New Testament were then baptized. It's important to God. It's important to us as a church. And so I just I want to make an appeal to you in this. If you have not been baptized, or if you're concerned that perhaps it came out of order in your life, uh, I, just, I would just love to talk with you about it, just to talk. No, no, no pressure. No, you're not, you're not, you're not signing your, your life away. You don't have to be committed to Harvest Church long term, but I, I'd love to talk to you about it. You can check it on your little communication card right there. Just write the word baptism or come find me after the service. We're here for about an hour after we're done. Just come, come have a conversation with me. Um, uh, I was, I, I had the great privilege of baptizing my own wife who grew up in a, in a tradition where she was baptized as an infant but convicted of, the, of these scriptures, I was able to baptize her in adulthood, and uh, there's tremendous joy in that. And so I just, I encourage y'all, if that's the case for you, that we would say, okay, this is not a religious ritual. I've got to check the box so God won't hate me or so that the church wouldn't judge me. This is a celebration of the life that we've been given. It's a proclamation of what he's done for us. That's baptism, okay? Now, I, I hope the half, the half hour we've spent here hadn't been too terribly confusing. <laughs> Um, but I hope also, li listen, if, if we're ever tempted to scrap parts of the Bible that are hard, and, and they're, they're, they're in there. There are parts that, for me, I've got question marks on, and I've got no further clarity from the first time I read it. Um, and and uh, that's, that can be troubling for us. That can be difficult for us. But my encouragement for you is that you don't gloss over it. You don't scrap it, even just in your own mind that we would dig deeper, that you dig deeper personally, you take it as, a, as an, a challenge to say, I'm going to investigate what this means before I move on, but that we'd also do it in community, that, that I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be content just with a Google search of a troubling scripture, but that I would in, embrace the truth of God's word in community with his church so that we might grow together. Because even though I don't, I don't have a lot of resolute feelings about all the things we've looked at today, I hope that we're, we've gone a little deeper and we're a little bit better for it because we didn't scrap it. And so don't, don't have a mindset that says, if I don't understand it, I'll just move on. 
I, believe that, I don't believe that God's desire is for us to know everything. But I do believe he delights to enlighten us, to give us wisdom, to, to take, at times, the blinders off, to turn the light on. And, and uh, sometimes, if, we're, if, if he's gracious, uh, we experience those moments, and we're so glad that we set on it and dug into it. So I encourage that. But whatever for us, whatever the, uh, the details are today, whether, how, however resolute you feel on those, I don't know. But I want to encourage you in this. God's desire is not to confuse us. It's to fortify us. And he fortifies us in part by giving us the greater truth that, that runs as almost like an undercurrent under these confusing details that Jesus Christ has won the victory over evil and sin and death. I hope we see that. And it's not just a cosmic victory. That's true. Peter's told us. But he's also done it for you. He's died for the victory over your sin and your death so that you no longer live hopelessly in sin, so that I no longer have to live based on my own conscience, but that I can appeal to God for something that only he can give to me. And we can all do that even right here where we sit. You have been rescued from judgment. You are cleansed and you are made alive to God. Now, my last question for us, do we believe that? It's easy in church to nod our heads at the scripture and say, oh yeah, that's, that's good, I believe that. But Monday morning's coming, Tuesday morning's coming, and something Robert said a minute ago, if you heard it, I've got to preach this to myself. I've got to fight in some sense to believe this on Monday mornings. Because in my flesh, in my nature, I'm not always prone to want to believe what this has told me, Right? And the true measure of our belief does not come on a Sunday morning. It comes throughout the rest of the week when we've got to really decide for ourselves how we're going to stand, what we're going to stand upon. Uh, I mentioned a minute ago Martin Luther. Martin Luther got chastised one time by his congregation. They came to him and said, we're tired of you preaching the same message every week. He kept preaching the message of Jesus Christ who died on the cross, who was raised from the grave, and who has now uh, offered to them eternal life, the forgiveness of all sin. He kept saying that every Sunday. And they said, listen, when are we going to move on? When are you going to start talking about other things? When are we going to press on into more? And Martin Luther told them, he said, I'll stop preaching it when you walk in like you really believe it. He said, every Sunday you walk in, and I'm not really sure by the look on your face if you really believe it, so I'm going to keep preaching it. And you know what? That's me. He's talking about me. I need this fresh every day. I trust that you do too. There is no moving on. This is the truth that does everything for us. Not A, B, C, but A to Z. Everything we have in Jesus Christ because of what he's done for us. And my heart is that we would live it out this week like we really believe it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we have been granted gifts and blessings beyond compare. Lord, beyond what this world can offer us, Father beyond, Lord, what we can drum up from within ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that whatever it may be that, that in your scripture today that would stick with us, the thing that keeps coming to me is this, is this idea of conscience. I know what I've done. I know the condition of my own heart. And Lord, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet anything on it when it comes to your righteousness. And Father, I need something done for me because I cannot do it. And so, Father, I pray that, that for me and for us together in this room this morning, that we would receive by faith the freshness, the newness, uh, the wonder of your gospel 
today, even if we've been walking with you as Christians for a long time, that, it, that Lord, it would, it would wash over us afresh today, that we would reflect on our salvation, that we would reflect on our baptism and know that our conscience is clean because Jesus Christ has made us righteous by his grace. Father, where we struggle perhaps today through some details of your word, Father, lead us into wisdom and grant us, Lord, perspective. Um, We may never fully know what this stuff means, but Father, we can be absolutely secure, firm in what you have done on our behalf. And so, Father, we celebrate this great truth, and I pray, Lord, that we would mine the depths of it together that Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Father, we are your children today by faith. And we pray, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that we would delight ourselves in that truth because we know we haven't earned it. So, Father, fortify us, encourage us. I pray, Lord, that this week would be a week unlike any other, even if our circumstances don't change at all, but because we have established our feet on the solid ground of Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us, and we are now your children. And so we thank you for it, and I pray, Lord, that it would embolden us to new life today. In his name, amen.